a lot of times when people are telling me the story of like, oh, I'm giving them feedback, it's erratic. Um, and, you know, I think when you think about human psychology, we are like, we are, our, our lizard brain turns on when, when things that are erratic and unexpected versus when things are consistent, when things have a rhythm, when there's a routine, then like that part of the brain sort of stays quiet and you can actually listen to the feedback. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Dave Klein. Dave has earned a reputation as somewhat of an expert at taking leadership theory and teaching people how to apply it in clear, actionable steps. He spent two decades leading high-impact teams in consulting, financial services, and asset management, including having 37 direct reports in his 20s. He's led 17 training cohorts of high-trajectory managers at multiple companies, recruited, onboarded, and mentored over 100 managers at the infamous Bridgewater Associates, He's conducted a thousand performance evaluations with grace and respect for stars and terminations alike. He joins me today to share his tactics to help you unleash your own leadership impact. Dave, welcome to Unleashed. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So Dave, uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, for a while. I've been a huge fan of yours on Twitter. And, I, and this going back to, uh, I think it's going back almost exactly a year since I came across you and, and very quickly uh, started to learn that you had a lot of really uh, valuable things to share when it came to leadership. So thank you for making time to be with us today. No, thank you. If you were here a year ago, you were, uh, you were an early adopter, so I appreciate you. Well, I'm happy to be along, uh, along for that journey and, and been phenomenal uh, to watch just the rise in uh, influence and, and audience growth that you've had and some of the, the really cool things that you're doing uh, that we'll have a chance to talk about, uh, that we'll have a chance to talk about today. You know, and I thought one of the places I wanted to start, Dave, is you have certainly uh, become what I would call a manager expert. And I was so curious to hear from you in terms of when did you first start to feel like managing people was something that you were really good at? A great question. I, I think I'm still waiting, to be totally honest. Um, I, partly what I, I think I'm sharing with everybody else is all the mistakes that I've made along the way, right? Mistakes I've made with my very first, you know, direct report, mistakes I've made with a team of 200. And so, um, you know, I feel like as part of starting to share that online, there are people I look ahead of me and I'm like, wow, you know, like thinkers like Adam Grant and others and, and, um, or other you know, CEOs or business executives who have figured things out. And I'm learning from them all the time and bringing that back and saying, how can I apply that to what we're doing? And then I know there's people behind me, you know, like we have our, we have our course filled up with leaders, you know, pretty much on a monthly basis. And all of those folks for, in many ways are doing things that I, I have worked through, right? I have figured out how to delegate. I have figured out how to measure performance, at least 
you know, in a number of situations. And so that, you know, I sort of feel like that's the uh, learn from the people ahead of you on the path, share with the people behind you, and you're, but you never really get to where you're going. Well, that's, and it's a very humble answer. I'm not surprised that you would answer it that way. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think it's a wonderful thing to stay in in that in that beginner's mind or that learner mindset for for as long as as a person is alive. Uh, I think that's wonderful. Um, but I am curious. Like there must have been a moment or some moments. Like I think about learning how to swim, and it's like that first time you realize that you can actually do it. Like there must have been some times where or a period where you started to see behavior changes with the teams that you were managing that made you say, wow, you know, I think I'm actually starting to get in the hang of things. I'm just, I'm just curious sort of what are some of the things that, that you started to see and, and when was that moment in your career? Yeah, I think you sort of go, go off the top of my head. I'm like thinking back to, um, you know, someone who was one of my direct reports, maybe four or five years in, like I was managing a couple people and then there was, uh, this was back at Moody's, there was a big reorg. And so I went from having two people to 25 people overnight. And I remember there was one person on the team and, um, you know, the manager who was orchestrating this said like, you know, watch out for him. And I was like, huh, like, what does that mean? You know, like, what do you watch out? Like, there was no more context. It was just sort of like forewarned is fairwarned. You have your hands full. And I remember thinking at that moment, I have two choices, right? I can accept that warning you know, and start to go hunt for the problems underlying it? Or is it more impressive and interesting if I go go prove him wrong? Like if I go prove that manager wrong? And so I got to know this person um, and I like, I hate the word protege or, or whatever else, but like this, I'm still friends with this person two decades later. And he's gone on to run like massive groups in other organizations as well. And I think that sort of like first three to six months with him where it went from his reputation of being like, ooh, watch out for him, to people clamoring to steal him off my team, for companies like coming in to headhunt him out. Um, that was a pretty big moment. And he'll he'll still circle back and say, like, you know, I I wasn't, I was kind of someone to watch out for. And working with you for three or six months totally changed that and changed the trajectory of my career. So that that was probably the first moment. And then there's just been a string of those along the way, just people who um you know, they were strong to, you know, but, you know, working with them and being able to help them find an obstacle in their way or connect them with a different you know, partner, a different project, a different opportunity, and just see it take off. Like, I, I get tons of energy from that. Yeah, no, that that's a, that's a significant defining moment. And that's, you know, some of the stuff that I'm really looking forward to digging in with you today is those some of those things that you've learned along the way and what was worked what hasn't worked and and i know that you've been able to sort of uh, codify some of the fundamentals of being a great manager and you know learning from guys like ray dalio and working at bridgewater and associates and uh, we're, we're going to talk about some of that stuff too which is fascinating but i know that a lot of folks that will be tuning in here today whether they they know you or not are they tune in here for for actionable steps and you know, that is something that you have self-admitted, I think, is one of your superpowers is that taking the management theory and then understanding how to actually apply it and figuring out how to apply it. Like the knowing and doing gap, I think there's enough evidence to say that that is probably becoming more of a problem in the world, not less. How did you start to develop that skill? 
you know, we will talk about this in our course with this idea of like, you know, some things are skills and some are abilities and some are like mindsets and things you either experience or you've brought with you, you know, like the, the born with versus the built. And um, I don't know if I was born with this, but I, you know, I had, I grew up a lower middle class. I had two parents who were very, very different. Um, but one thing they had in common is they were both like very, um, they're both like very industrious. They're both scrappy. They both could like figure things out in exceptionally different ways. But that was like one part that united them. And, um, you know, they they ended up splitting up when I was like 11. And so I sort of woke up as the man of the house one day. And I think I just saw that in them and brought that forward. And so there was very much this, I can figure it out. I can do it myself. And I think that created the foundation, right? Like when you have to kind of constantly go figure things out, unpack it, um, that started to become like why I went to go be an engineer. Like I wasn't, I wasn't the best in math. I like really struggled with physics, but I could figure things out. I could sort of see the path through. I could sort of pull apart the recipe that made like the big idea turn into something we could serve. And, you know, then really the next unlock of that journey was at Bridgewater where we, where we sort of treated management as a craft, you know, that it, if you could have investors and you could have technologists, you could also have managers, you could have leaders. And a lot of companies think of it, you know, more so as a function, right? It's a thing you do versus like, no, 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 this is an entirely different track. And bringing that same sort of recipe builder mentality to management is now what I'm able to turn around and do. And so, you know, we can go from the theory of, you know, you should delegate a lot of work to answering the question like, yeah, but how, how do you delegate it in a way that the person feels like, oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled to do this and you're investing in my career and you're making me feel like part of the team and I'm adding value versus you took the, you know, you took the terrible work sitting on your desk you didn't want to do, threw it over the fence and wished me luck. You know, and like, is there a playbook to run with that? And I think there is. Yeah, and that's, and I want to get, and I love that you use the language playbook. It's very actionable. Uh, I, I feel like I could take that and start using it right away. So I, uh, I do want to dig into the playbook in a second. But you, you said something that makes me curious the, this, the, the, you mentioned management and you mentioned leadership. And this is something that I struggle with sometimes is how important is it to separate management from leadership? And I'm curious about your perspective on that. Yeah. My, my personal view is management done well is leadership. You know, that there are the, there is management as the task, you know, the, the organizing, the directing, but that doesn't usually sustain very well. And then when I think about leadership, I'm thinking about I'm inspiring, I'm empowering, I'm, I'm giving people space for mastery. And so to some degree, if I just think of that as a continuum, right? If I if I start to work with someone who's a, a manager and that's how they're treating it, I am trying to give them, basically my plays all run to, by the end of this, you, you will be leading, not just managing. And it actually becomes the more sustainable way to manage a team, uh, which is sort of the paradox that people overlook. I, I love that. That that really resonates with me, Dave. And I mean, maybe I oversimplify it, but I, I often think of them as being one and the same. And so I love how you have uh, how you've said that is that management done well is leadership. I I, I couldn't agree more with your assessment. Um, so let's let's sort of dig into some of the details now. And you know, leadership. I, I think leadership is one of the most confusing um, uh, one, and also one of the most rewarding, but one of the most difficult things other than maybe being a spouse and, 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 uh, and being a parent. And, but one of the things I think that makes leadership confusing is there are so many well-intentioned, let's just say managers out there that aspire to be 
exceptional managers, terrific leaders, uh, invest in their people, but they don't necessarily know where to start. And so usually where the starting point is, they go on, I think, a, a journey of self-discovery. And so they listen to their favorite podcast, uh, or they go in search of like the best book, and then really quickly they learn there's 25 million Google searches when you type in leadership. And so instead of going down a clear path, it just gets awful confusing and they don't stick with it or they don't get started in the first place. And so you know, I, I would love to get your perspective on what do you think are some of the fundamentals that great managers should have in their toolkit? That's it could be a whole podcast on that question alone. Um, I know. And I, and I think it's, it's, you know, and I think for today's conversation is just trying to get people some of the basics, like here's the things to get you started um, that are that I'm gonna put you on the right track. And then we can do part two down the road. 100%. So I would, um, I would start uh, in, in a relatively simple place. Uh, and, that is, and that is first, um, we'll talk a lot of times about when people are struggling in a job, like do they have the will and do they have the skill, right? Do they want it and can they do it? And so you can do, you can look at that proactively and so I'd say the very first question before you raise your hand and accept an assignment to lead other people to be a manager is like, do I, do I want that? Like, do I have the will? Um, because I think there's this idea that you're going to have to shed your old identity um, and pick up a new one, right? So you're going to have to go from, in many cases, being the, the reason they're tapping you is because you're probably the best at what is your function, right? You're the best salesperson, the best technologist, the best graphic designer, you pick it. They're like, oh, you're the best. You should now lead other people. And so you're going to have to now say like, my identity as the best salesperson needs to be put aside. And I need to go assume the new identity as the best leader of salespeople. And it's very different, right? You have to get work done through others and, and you have to value that. You have to be willing to invest in their coaching and development. You have to start to build the judgment for their way being okay versus different from yours and things of that nature. And so I'd say first and foremost, like just spend the hour or spend the weekend in that quiet room and really answering that question for yourself. Like, do I want to go on that journey? Um, because I would, there's, there's a stat that plays out pretty frequently, which is 60% of managers from brand new managers up to the C-level fail in 18 months. Um, they have to be removed from that job. And, and having worked with a bunch of those people, like I would say the single most common diagnosis is they didn't really want the job. Like they didn't want to let go of the older identity and pick the new one. So that's that's my starting point. If you get over that hurdle, then I'm happy to give you a few more tactical, like focus on these three things. Hey, well, and, and then Dave, so you're hitting on a lot there. Um, and I think so there's a lot of really profound things that are at play there. And so one of the first things that you said is becoming a great manager is not necessarily about the manager themselves. It's more about the organization and their selection process. And I, I wonder if you could if you could maybe expand on that a little bit, like in because you've worked in some organizations like that are world class in terms of leadership development, leadership identification. What are some things that organizations should be doing on a sort of a tactical level to identify folks? Uh, uh, for promotion opportunities? Well, I think you can, um, you can basically take the thing I said and just flip it. And then um, partly what I'm trying to do, if I'm thinking about, okay, systematically, I want to develop great leaders in my organization, right? Like for 
like my preference is not to do things one at a time. It's to figure out the system that can do that replicably. And so I could take that same sort of self-reflection and say, okay, as an organization, I want to increase the odds that someone I pull up is going to, is going to succeed. Right. I, I want, I want to find the 40% who make it. I don't want to pull up the 60% who don't because I lose twice. I pull them out of a spot where they're producing excellently. And then I demoralize them or I lose them because it's very hard to have them go back. Right. They get, they get more comp. They feel like they um, have failed. There's all kinds of negative repercussions. So you want to up the probability. The way that I would up the probability um, is how I would do most things. And I would run, an, I would find experiments to run. Right. Like I would give them a project without giving them the title. Right. Can they, can they lead people? Can they influence, put them on a committee? Um, there's all kinds of different small steps you can take to both give them a sample. Um, and get yourself data to then say like, oh, some of these people really grabbed onto that. We should lean into that. And other people got a taste and were like, I am not interested. And, you know, there was no, there was no sort of Rubicon that was crossed that you can't go back over. Um, so that would be my, that would be my move. Yeah, that's, no, that's really good advice. Now, the other, the other thing uh, that you said that I don't think it's talked about a lot is turning down a promotion. And, I, and I, I love this idea of having a system to increase the probability. And I, and I think one of the keys with probability is it's not gonna be 100%. Like you're, if you even know, I think if you hiring probability is kind of like flipping a coin, it's 50-50 proposition. So how should an organization be having those conversations to make it safe for employees to say no to a promotion? And then I'd be curious to flip it and say, what are some ways that an employee could turn down a promotion without putting their employment in jeopardy? Because I think that's the fear quite often. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a it's, a, it's a good news, bad news story. So I think the good news is that more organizations are willing to have that conversation and more organizations are rewarding their best producers at a level higher than some of your, their best managers. So I think if you rewind the clock, even 10 years, a lot of the pressure was, well, the only way I can make more money is if I'm a manager. And I now, at least I'm seeing more and more of the companies I work with where, no, 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 the best developers, architects, um, you know, the best salespeople, et cetera, they make well more. They make like sometimes orders of magnitude more money than, than the best managers. And so I think that takes the pressure off to now say, I only want to go get onto that track if it's the right thing for me to have the most impact not the only way I can get to more money. So I think that's the good news side of the story. I do think I'm with you, which is like, I think the bad news side is like, that's still the minority of companies, right? I think there's still a lot of organizations where either by virtue of just how big they are, like they don't have that much scale to sort of allow that specialization, or they just aren't that progressive in how they think about architecting their org, um, that that still is the path. So if I'm in one of those organizations and I am, you know, put into the situation where, hey, we really want you to step up and take on this challenge. Um, one of the things that I'll often do in that conversation to, uh, is help me understand how you got to that decision. You know, like take me through, you know, hopefully there's like some thought behind it. Like, oh, we think you can do it for this. We think we, we see these abilities in you. We've run this test with you and you seem to really like it. Um, sometimes in simply asking that question, they'll be like, oh, we thought you wanted it. And you, and you might say like, well, I really love my book of business or I really love the project I'm working on. Um, I'm flattered, but like, if I didn't want it, which place do you think I might have more impact in the organization? And if all of a sudden they're like, well, no, we, we, the, the miscommunication 
is like half of it. Like half the time they're promoting someone because they think they want it and that person didn't even want it. And so you sort of opened up to make sure you understood the logic behind it. Um, and then so you're now down to the last corner, which is, okay, they thought about it and they want you to do it and you don't want to. And I think this just becomes like, hopefully you've built a trust and the reputation where you can have an honest conversation and say, like, I think I'm, I, I think I'm better on this position on the field. Like we, um, I don't, I don't mean to diminish this in any way. Like our, our daughter plays soccer at a pretty high level and she identifies as a defender, even though we are now three years of coaches in a role in a row who have said like, you're really would be a great midfielder you know, and they can't will her to want to not go back on defense. And so, you know, that's her identity and that's where she is. And to her credit, you know, at 13, she has an honest conversation with her coach and is like, I prefer it. And so, you know, if you can put me out there, like that's where I want to be. And so I think, I think if she can do it, most, most professionals can do it too. Yeah, no, well, well said. And I mean, I, and I think just such an important piece there, there's such an onus on, uh, on the senior leaders in the organization to make sure that they're having those conversations in a more collaborative way, consultative way, and not jumping to conclusions as to whether the person wants the promotion or the reasons why they might turn it down. So uh, I think that's that's good advice. And we see it so often in the organizations that we deal with, Dave, is that uh, the simple example I use is that quite often the, uh, the custodian is made the calculus teacher because that custodian is a pleasure to be around, they're great with the students, the faculty, and, and, and the parents, and they keep it safe and clean as they're supposed to, but they're misdiagnosed, and we make them the math teacher. And so, like you said earlier, 18 months later, they've gone from being like the best custodian you've ever had to leaving yep. as a dejected, failed math teacher. And it, it just happens in organizations uh, all the time. Um, I want to come back to something else. You, you, you use this. Um, you use this sort of this this uh, this sort of two simple terms: the will and the skill. So let's talk about folks that have the will, they wanna learn, they're excited about this promotion to become a manager or take another step up in the organization. So now it comes time to shed that identity part and start having those new skills and, and, and the, a new way of being evaluated. That shedding of the identity piece though is not easy for a lot of people. And I've even experienced my, it myself. And I. I wonder what kind of experience and what kind of advice you have for people as they're going through that process of shedding their former self to become sort of the new version and, and meet the new expectations of being a manager or a leader. Yeah, so we, um, the tactics that I will use with folks is the, the good news is you don't have to shed all of your identity, right? You're not, you're not burning yeah. it to the ground and then completely starting over. You're not a phoenix rising from the ashes. And so it's more a process of self-reflection and saying like, okay, I'm going to bring certain mindsets to the table, right? Um, are these going to, are these going to support my journey as a manager? Or are these going to get in my way? I'm going to do the same is going to be true of my abilities, right? I, maybe I'm analytical, maybe I'm creative, but like for the, for the mission I'm on, how is that going to support or hinder? Um, and the same with the skills, right? Like maybe I'm excellent and I'm super organized, but I'm not very good at delegating. Uh, and so the first place I would start is just sort of um, that honest reflection with yourself of like, what does that map look like? And even, and I would then double check it. I would double check it with people um, around you who care about you. You can do it with a spouse. You can do it with a boss. You can do it with some peers, but like get, you know, get four or five pieces of data. You can go to, um, you know, in, in our class, we use principles U, which is a, a psychometric test that Ray Dalio created with Adam Grant. Um, speaking of both of them. And, uh, 
basically to replace the MBTI. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as gospel either, but that's another place where you could then get data on those types of things. Like where, where do you have a, where do you have a headwind that's going to hold you back from being a great leader? Where do you have a tailwind that you can double down on? that's going to support it. Um, And if I just think to use myself as an example, right? Like we talked a little bit earlier about how I, I, I grew up with a lot of pride around like being able to figure things out, like being industrious, being scrappy. Um, that could be a huge problem as a manager. You know what I mean? Like in a world where I shouldn't go figure the thing out, you know, that that can trend towards micromanaging or I can put too low a value on what I'm capable of in my time and take on tasks that I could give to somebody else to free up the space to take on things that I can't give to somebody else. And so that's just like one example where um, I think where a lot of people will get hung up is they'll be like, oh, so you have a scarcity mindset. Like, ooh, that's bad. And I'm like, it's not bad. It's not even good. It's just, it just is. And you know what I mean? And so once you're dealing with what's true, then you can figure out what to do about it, right? You can say like, oh, how do I want to deal with the fact that faced with a situation to naturally delegate or to hold on, I'm going to hold on. What kind of system do I need to create? What kind of guardrail is going to, what, what are the prompts? that are going to get me to sort of snap out of my natural state and do the thing that a manager or a leader would do, not the thing that I would do naturally. So that's, that's yeah. where I would start is to sort of have that inventory and really um, sort of come to honest terms with it. So uh, there's a ton of elements of self-awareness in there. And I, and I, I really like the idea of using a tool, but, but both combined with having a, a group of people that you can trust that understand your goals and know you well, you know, those the loving critic language as an example that can uh, that can help you stay on uh, on course or help you course correct uh, uh, when you're not. So I think um, I think that's some really good advice. Uh, Dave, you mentioned your playbook a little bit, and and I think you've talked about perhaps like some of the elements that are in there. I've also heard you talk about you know developing a, a bit of a management operating system, and I, I wondered if you could talk about maybe some of the key elements that are that are in your playbook or or in the management operating system and what do you, how do you prefer to refer to it what's your what's your common sort of language that you use for it we i feel like we're still working on it i um you know yeah. i'm like so hesitant to get to the management operating system cuz it's so close to the entrepreneur operating system from traction um yeah you know, which I, I i think there's actually a decent amount of overlap between how um how that book articulates the approach to running a, a startup or an organization and how I think about it. But I believe that my version of it, um, it layers in a lot more on the human side. Like if you think of any, if, I can think of any organization as a factory, right? And all I really have inside the factory are three things. I have people, I have um, processes they're running, and I have tools they use to do it. Um, and so whether that, that feels very real in a car factory, but it's just as true in sales, right? You've got humans, yeah. Who are going through a sales process and what's supposed to come out of that is going to be, you know, you know, purchases for the organization. The same is true in technology, et cetera. And so, um, you know, my, I don't, so I don't have the perfect language for it. We talk about it. We do use the word playbook a lot. Um, yeah. and, and, and part of the reason is twofold. One is, um, you know, I, I grew up playing sports. I have a, a deep connection to sports. I feel like a lot of the lessons that I think about with leadership, I see acutely, in the management of sports teams, right? Like unlike business, there's a very clear scoreboard. Like, you know, if your team wins or loses, um, a lot of the dynamics that we go through, having to recruit talent, having to coach talent, having to get the most out of them, having to design your system. Um, they do that every year, right? If you're, if you're Nick Saban coaching Alabama, you turn 35% of your team over every single year. Like that's, 
that's where some my the turnover I had to deal with at Bridgewater, right? And so how do you sustain excellence while you know 35, 40% of the people walk out the door? And so so one of the reasons I go to playbook is I take a lot of lessons from there and I try to study that. And then the other one is um again, we were talking about earlier, I don't I don't love the I, I like theory, but like ideas are cheap and execution is where like the impact is made. And so a playbook, you go run a play, right? We draw it up, we go run it. Like, did we score or did we not score? And if we didn't, then let's adjust the play. Um, or do we call the wrong play in the situation? But at least it's like, it's tangible. We can go take action. We can generate data. Then we can study the data and come back uh, and keep doing it. And so that's the that's the other reason. And so I think you're probably hearing some of the philosophy of the playbook, even in my description of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I identify with, with the language of playbook or having a recipe even, but I think that there's, there's, I think there's two things I really love about the playbook analogies. I, I can actually feel myself running a play so I can, I can actually start to understand what it's like to experience the tool as an example or the process and, uh, and then come back and say, okay, how did that work for me? What, what went well, what didn't go well, and then try to diagnose why it didn't so that I can constantly sort of iterate my approach until I find a way that works optimally for me. If if you ever arrive there, maybe you never arrive at optimizing it, but uh, you certainly arrive at a place where it's where it's going to be effective uh, uh, for you across that across that threshold. Uh, Even though we have humans in that playbook, Jeff, it's tricky. It's tricky to ever yeah, fully well, optimize. They keep they're finicky. They keep changing on you, growing and improving and leaving. It's 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 a pesky business. Right. Well, and I think that you, that's one of the reasons why having a, a one-size-fits-all approach is, 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 uh, is probably not suggested. And sometimes a playbook might give you some structure, but then you have to adjust it not just to your own style, but to the style of your employees. So that's a really good point. Uh, Dave, what would be some of the others, like key plays? I know you're, you're sitting on something, so go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, no. I was just going to say, Jeffy, the, the thing I think you're really hitting there is such a common leadership mistake, right? Like you will hear all the time about, you know, do we have a standard, like a standard operating procedure? Do we have a, a, a documented process? And, or I'll have people come to me for coaching and be like, my, 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 everything that has to be done is written down and they're not following it. And I think you're just, I just, you're, you caught my attention because your description of the playbook um, is that sweet spot that when I'm working with those people, like I'm trying to remind them they need to find, right? That, um, you, no matter what it is we're doing, you know, if you have a playbook or you have a, a, a process map or an SOP, it's always incomplete, right? Because your business is evolving, it's changing, your team's evolving and changing. So as soon as you wrote it down, you know, as soon as you got it on paper, it was out of date. So you have to sort of hold that it's like half there and half missing. And then even the half that's there is half wrong, you know? And so you're like, okay, even in the best world where you've written this whole thing down, it's like 25% right. But that I, but people, people will rely on that 25%, like it's gospel, like it's dogma. Um, and then they get very focused on it and they just sort of like go into task mode, right? They're just, I just executed what you told me on the paper. Um, and so instead, the way you, I think, laid out the playbook is like, yes, we have a structure. It organizes, it gives us common language that we know roughly what we're going to go do. But we're also knowing that like the game is going to unfold differently than we imagined. And we're going to have to like have really good athletes who are going to be able to make judgments to call audibles and to do things differently. So I just, I don't know, the way you said it, I was like, oh, I need to borrow that because it was like so spot on. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And Dave, what I'm wondering is if like a sports team, are there some key plays, like the, the fundamental plays that you just have to have in your playbook to, uh, 
to just have the, I guess, the basics or the fundamentals, and then you start to experiment and 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 add more plays from there. But if you would, are there a few plays that you would say are the critical ones? And if there are, kind of, what would they be? Yeah, um, I won't go back to delegation, though. I think that's part of it. I would say, in my mind, there are three. Like, there's there's 85. But if you if you yeah. were a new manager or you were taking on a new team and you had to get three of them right, um, and these are. I'm sort of surrounding this with outside of like build trust and, you know, the environment and the culture. Let's just assume that that's pretty clear, but like three things I would go try to perfect. Um, the first one is recruiting. Like you have to be able to identify, assess and close really excellent talent, right? If, if we, if we stay in the sports analogy for a minute, right. You go back to the Rams a couple of years ago, you know, they sort of Sean McVay would talk about, running his offense around the level of quarterback play that he could get from Jared Goff. Then they go out, they trade, they get Matthew Stafford. And he's like, Ooh, I can adjust my system. And that was the difference between getting to the Super Bowl and winning the Super Bowl. Right. So I start with recruiting because like, yes, you want to tailor your system around your talent, but you will still hit the ceiling of your talent. And so you need to be able to go out and get the best, um, you know, the best possible for your circumstance. That doesn't always mean the best in the world. It just means the best that matches your reality. So I think recruiting is one. I think yeah. the, then the second one I would say is coaching and development, like your ability to help people go through that same self-reflection process we just talked about for the manager themselves, but do they have an accurate picture of themselves? And then how can you give them the right um, resources, support, and real work that allows them to develop in a way that both meets the company's goals or the group's goals, as well as their personal goals. Like when you put those two things overlapping, like magic happens because if I want something for myself and I want it in benefit of the team, then it really takes off. And so just having that ability to read people, to challenge when they need to be challenged, to support when they need to be supported, to listen when you need to listen, um, that coaching and development would be my bucket too. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, three, and, and it sort of is almost like the connective tissue of a lot of these. And I think it's one that people won't normally think about. It's setting really clear expectations. Um, and when we talk about it um, in the course, I'll talk about it as co-authoring them. Because again, I want, I want people to um, have really high standards. I want them to strive to be really excellent, but I want them to believe they can do it. You know, I want them to, I want them to feel like they wrote the play that they're going to go run because then they can't turn around and say, well, I ran the play, but you like, this was your play. I, I was just, I just ran my route. Um, so no, we wrote this play together. You helped come up with it. And then we ran it. And the reason I say the expectations are so critical is um, as I have worked with people with different teams to uncover, you know, when, when teams are sort of butting heads or when people, when, when projects are getting stuck, a lot of times it just becomes a simple conversation of asking, you know, person A, like, oh, what did you expect? You know, what, what did you think was most important? What did you, what were you optimizing for? What data did you put into your decision? And then you ask person B and you will quickly find out that like one of those three things don't line up and they just had different expectations. You know, maybe you're a manager with secret expectations, maybe your peers and you just didn't sort of reconcile an important point. So if you can get really good at um, setting those in a way that's collaborative, um, I think you're like 80% of the way there because you've got great talent with clear expectations and they're getting better every day because you're coaching them. Yeah, no, that, th those are those uh, those resonate for sure. And on, on the recruiting side, then Dave, 
What are some of the mistakes that you see organizations making when it comes to recruiting these days? I'm not sure if it's these days. I feel like it's um, these like are the mistakes that are like time immemorial. Um, <laughs> I'd say the biggest one is most people confuse hiring with recruiting. So for me, kind of like our management leadership conversation, hiring, when you ask a lot of people like, you know, how do you think about adding talent to your team? They'll say like, oh, I, I write a job description. I give it to HR. They send me three candidates. I interview those people and we, and we pick the best one. And then when you talk to really impactful executives who have surrounded themselves with like one in 10,000 talent, they talk about it very differently. They're like, oh, I am actively in the world identifying the best talent that I'm going to need 12 to 18 months from now. I'm thinking about how my organization is going to evolve, the types of new talent, new capabilities that I'm going to need to meet that moment. I'm nurturing those relationships. And in many cases, I'm nurturing five, seven, 10 of them, knowing that one person will line up at the right moment when I need them 12 months, 18 months down the road. And in none of that conversation, do you hear anything about interviews or HR or job descriptions? right? It's a much more proactive, um, it's like a proactive cultivation of, of a future organization. And it's just so fundamentally different. Um, and so the first part is just snapping, snapping the mindset from one of being transactional to one of being proactive. That is profound. You are absolutely right. The moment you start talking to the average person about recruiting, they start talking about hiring process. They're not actually talking about recruiting. That's brilliant. Uh, we, have, we have a client that treats their uh, future employees as well as they would treat a prospect like on a customer side of their business. Like he yeah. will take people that he hopes will work for him someday to hockey games, for lunches, to golf. And you can imagine like, you know, to use your language in terms of probability, the odds that those folks yeah. will ever work for him are rare, but the ones that do will probably contribute way more to that business than anybody else he would have been hiring to fill vacancies uh, had he not been doing that. And I bet the ones that don't still tell their peers about him, right? So even, even in the worst case scenario where they don't come to work, you're getting this positive word of mouth. You're getting connected to more people who are like the people you're nurturing. And that's how the, yeah. it's how the network explodes exponentially. That's and that's another piece I hadn't thought about before. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, that's another profound comment, Dave. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the coaching side now. And, and again, like a lot of this stuff, I know that the coaching part is a big bucket, but are there a few simple ways that somebody could start, I mean, enroll in a coaching training program, certainly you could do that. But are there some things, like some simple things that that people can start to do just to nudge themselves more in the direction of becoming a coach leader. It's uh, it's going to feel like it's scripted because the first thing I was going to say is stop confusing feedback with coaching because um, yeah. it's very much the it's a, it is a similar thing where a lot of times you'd be like I am I have been giving this person feedback about how they are disorganized or how they are X Y Z and it's, they're not getting any better and and I'd say well it's because you're giving them feedback you're not coaching. And so the, you know, the simple, the simple nudge I try to give them is to say, you know, there's a few things inside of coaching, right? There's part of um, first, are they aware, like, are they aware and in agreement with the, the deficit or with the gap or with the problem you're seeing? 
right? A lot of times when you're just giving feedback, there's no, there's, there's no agreement that that's something that person wants to work on or that they're even aware that they have a problem with. And so with coaching, we're being more proactive, right? We're going to say like, hey, this is, this is the picture of you. I know where we're trying to go. Like, I know you're going to try to get promoted to a senior associate. I know you're going to try to become a manager. I, you know, I see these three gaps. Do you see the same three gaps? Oh, you do. Great. Well, which one should we work on first? Because we can't change it all at once. Like people don't change that fast. So now we've got an agreement on what the gaps are. Then we've got an agreement on what we're going to focus on. Then we're going to sort of structure work to, you know, that is going to combine, you know, training and mentorship and advice and application, right? Like you can't go learn how to shoot free throws from a book. And so we're going to, we're going to do that and we're going to do it together. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to solicit and ask, I'm going to ask them to solicit, you know, signals back from people around them, from some of their peers, from the types of people who might be judging that promotion down the road. Right. And so like, oh, I'm working on becoming more creative. Here are the things I'm doing. Can you please give me feedback on whether you think I'm hitting that mark or whatever else? Um, and then lastly is just the consistency, right? It's just instead of it, a lot of times when people are telling me the story of like, oh, I'm giving them feedback, it's erratic. Um, and, you know, I think when you think about human psychology, we are like we are our, our lizard brain turns on when when things that are erratic and unexpected versus when things are consistent, when things have a rhythm, when there's a routine, then like that part of the brain sort of stays quiet and you can actually listen to the feedback. And so the last thing I would encourage people to do is just like, what is your ritual? Are you going to talk about feedback real time? Like we did at Bridgewater, like that was, that was our agreement and our ritual was just like, when we have feedback, we give it. And so it didn't have to like be triggering because you knew that that's how we had agreed to do business. In other organizations, I said, we, we would do feedback in our one-on-ones once a week. You know, technology organizations, they do retrospectives at the end of a release. Like there's lots of different rituals, but if you then put your feedback into the ritual, connected back to that agreed upon coaching plan, now you're coaching, you're not just criticizing. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have been guilty of that myself a number of times, confusing uh, uh, feedback with coaching. So that's, yeah, that's a, that's a really helpful, uh, that's a really helpful tip. And now you, you elaborated a bit on, on clear expectations already, and, uh, but, the thing that you had said was more about what happens when you start to have friction on a team or a project stalls out and you find out you've got different perspectives down the line. What are some ways that managers can do a better job of creating clear expectations right up front? Uh, let me, I think there's almost like two questions embedded in one. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'm gonna take the liberty of answering both. Cause I think there is, Please how do you set them you. better up front? And then, how do you put them back together when you missed? <laughs> you know? um, so for setting them up front, I think that um, a lot of people get obsessed with the what of the goal. You know, like with the, um, like if you go to Twitter, like how many times are you going to read about SMART goals? You know, like I, I get it. I know how to set a SMART goal. Um, it's specific. It's measurable. It's actionable. You know, like it has a timeline. Right. Everybody skips the other half though, which is how. How do you want me to do that? What is the cultural expectation of how we're going to perform? Like if I'm at Zappos and I'm on the customer service desk, can I just answer the question or do I need to be quirky? I'm pretty sure I need to be quirky. If I'm at Bridgewater, can I just have the meeting or do I need to record the meeting because we agree on radical transparency? And a lot, of, you know, so there's cultural, there's process, there's technology, there's expectations that you have as that craftsperson who did the job before, like you did it a certain way and you came up to the top of your craft. You have really clear ideas in your head about how to get that done well. And now you're asking somebody else to do it. 
And I, I'm shocked a number of times that managers will be like, I, you know, I, part of the test is having them figure it out. And you're like, well, I think that the thing you want to test is whether they can do the job, not whether they can read your mind, right? So, you know, like sharing that as part of the how inside of an expectation, like, oh, when I've done this in the past, these were the three most vital parts of what I did. Is that how you're thinking about doing it? Which leads to another part of how, which could be um, what I, I call them the encouraged experiments. Like part of the reason you want to delegate work to other people is you want them to be creative. You want them to do it better than you did it, not just as well, right? And so can we agree up front, like, what sort of innovation or different idea or different approach you might take and when we would declare it a success and when we would sort of declare the experiment over and we're going to revert back to the other way. Um, so all of those pieces I would put in, um, in in a bucket I call like the aligned how. And so that's yeah. if I was going to if I was going to set them better, I'd focus as much on the how as I do on the what. Yeah, so that yeah, that how is powerful. And then there's, there are elements to setting clear expectations, Dave, I think that involve a little bit of autonomy where you can just be, just if we, you and I have the same goal or the same target, uh, we might not yeah. go about it the same way, but there are some fundamentals that we would both have to follow along the way while adding in our own creative flavor. What are some ways or how, like, how do effective organizations clarify the difference where you have autonomy versus here's the elements that are process driven and structured? Yeah, I think I see two, there's, I see two different ways that people are doing it. So some are going really like the programmatic, like cascading OKR route. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, like our organization wants to have this really ambitious goal. And then we have these OKRs that cascade into each group. And in theory, if each of those groups get their key result, then the objective is met. And then if all those key results are met, then objective above that. Um, and I, I see people trying to do that. And most I've heard very few companies have pulled it off, that they end up spending uh, as much time setting the cascade of goals as they do actually trying to achieve them. Um, but I think it's like an interesting, ambitious experiment. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch people try to pull it off. And it does, even when it falls short, it does give people, I think, the, the most important point of the structure, right? It's like, this is our objective and this is the result you need to help us achieve it. Um, and so in an 80-20 way, even if the cascade's not perfect, it probably works better than not doing it. Um, the other way I see it is more like on the ground, like person to person. And so one of the things um, we'll talk a lot about is like delegating to the level of the operator. You know, like if I have a, like, let's imagine I have a chief of staff. She's been with me for five years. Like we have huge amounts of trust. I, I know her competency and capabilities, like as well as I know my own, you know, like sometimes you'll be able to say like, I'm just going to hand you this entire job, right? Like that, the highest point of that, I need you to just take over recruiting for us right now. And here you go. And like, that's, and do it, you know, like part of delegating at that level or part of setting the expectation at that level is like, the first thing to do is go figure out what exactly that means. Like how many people should we hire and how much should we spend to do it? Like you're just, but you're just delegating the total thing all the way down to, um, you know, like we, we, my wife and I sort of run this business together, right? We, she, if you see her account, it'll say like the duopreneurs, like the, it's like Justin Welsh is solopreneur, but with the, with the, um, the added emphasis and complication of being a husband and wife. And, um, you know, we, we hired our first EA this week. And so she started four days ago, right? Thank you. Um, but it's like, it, it is understandably and expectedly at the other end of the spectrum, right? Which is like, you don't know my technology. You don't know my company. You don't even know me. 
Like you don't like this is we're we're one, you know, we're a, a fast interview and resume review short. And so we're starting much more at the like we're we're task by task and line by line right now. But my goal is to sort of move her up the progression as fast as I can. Like I would love to be in five years handing her recruiting. Um, you know, but we're going to go from task to process and from process to responsibilities and responsibilities, you know, sort of up that up that ladder. And I'm I want to go as fast as um as fast as I can keep her right on the edge of that imposter syndrome line. Do you know what I mean? Like she's learning and we're stretching, but I'm not burning her out. I'm not like putting her so far past her competency that she can't, um, that she sort of has to capitulate. So that was, that. I, I, I'm doing that in my one person org, but I'm seeing lots of companies sort of handle it on the ground in that way too. Relative. Yeah. And, and, and then, so what about further down the line then, Dave, I want to come back to this piece. So you've, you think you've set pretty clear expectations on a given project and you get partway through and you realize that the expectations for whatever reason are not as clear as you thought they were, then what? Yeah. Um, so I think this one's super practical, but people skip it all the time. I would ask, I would ask two questions before I said anything. So I might, let's say something breaks and I obviously see it's broken and so many managers want to come in and, and the first thing they want to say is like, look how broken that is. So before I'm even going to go there, I'm going to ask the person responsible um, is this to your expectation? Question one. Uh, the reason I would start there is because like, it sort of, it sort of reemphasizes where we were a minute ago, which is like, well, do we have the same expectation? So there's a chance they have a higher standard than I do. There's a chance they have a lower standard. There's a chance there's a, a vector we don't agree on. Um, but before I put them on their heels by telling them it's already bad, I'm just like, what do you think? Like, was this, does this, did this meet your expectation? Because if we didn't have the same expectation, now debating what went wrong won't make any sense. So if we don't have the same expectation, the first problem to fix is like, well, okay, we need to have the same expectation. So I would close that gap. And, and we we create all kinds of stories in our heads as to why something did, didn't get done to the level or the standard that we expect without, first of all, making sure if we've clarified, they might be thinking they did a great job and we're thinking that they failed miserably. So that is a super important question to start off with. 100%. And by the way, the inverse is also true. Like some of my highest performers all the time thought they were failing and they were crushing it. And so you'd ask them like, how, how did that go against your expectation? And they're like, whew, that was terrible. And I, because I'm being consistent, right? I'm trying not to trigger that lizard brain. I'm doing that for successes and failures. And I was like, what do you mean? We said we were going to like make five sales. You made eight sales. We said we we're going to do it in a month. You did it in two weeks, you know? And, and they'll be like, oh, but I could have done more, you know? <laughs> And that is the scenario that uh, that all business owners should be aspiring uh, toward for sure. Uh, and I, and I, I think I hear far too more of the other scenario, but that you're right. Like that, that's important to do a check on that because I mean, if you've got an organization filled with A players, you're more likely to, to have that situation popping up without a doubt. It definitely plays both sides. Um, so okay, now let's imagine we have the same expectation. Right, like, okay, yep, we said we were going to deliver that project by Friday. It was going to have these three features. You missed the deadline, and we still have only one of the three features built. Okay, so we, but we had the same expectation, and now it didn't get met. Um, this is going to be super profound, so everyone should lean in. I'm going to lean in closely. Um, ask why. That's the whole thing. Like everyone quickly rushes into. Um, this like I know why to the same point of you were just making on like um, they 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 quickly connect all these things in their mind, 
without knowing, you know, and, and you'll be shocked again how many disagreements can be diffused um, because you'll learn a few things when you ask why. You'll learn, well, what did the person who was in charge know? Like, did they know they were going to miss the deadline? Did they, like, what what was going into it? Like, what, you know, oh, they knew, but they didn't tell you. Oh, that's an interesting thing. Why? Why didn't you tell me? And so you're going to see, like, just keep asking why and explore. And that's how you're going to do two things. One, you're going to leave, um, you're going to leave the responsibility with them, right? So as soon as you start, you become the arbiter of everything, you're sort of implicitly taking the responsibility back versus me saying like, okay, my expectation of you as the person responsible is that you are in command of this project. You're in command of this area. Like you, you're not perfect, but you know what's going on. You know what's winning. You know what's losing. You know how stable your people are. You know where the problems are. So I'm going to ask you why, because I'm expecting you to know the answer. And so you get to pick up on that. Like, do they know the answer or don't they? Um, and then you can explore whatever surface area they give you. Like sometimes it's innocuous. Sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, I had a sick, you know, my, my kid got so sick and I, you know, I had to rush to the hospital. Meanwhile, you think they're like something fundamentally wrong with their abilities. And you're like, no, their life happened to them. Just ask. Um, and some people, and half your people are introverted in private. They might not even feel comfortable volunteering that unless you do. Um, so anyways, I, I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, but honestly, this, if, if I said, how do you want to bring down the temperature on 80% of your disagreements? Like ask if it met their expectation. And then, and if you had the same expectation and it fell short, ask them why first, um, you know, and from there you can give your perspective and sort of compare them and use that to close the gaps back to the coaching. And what do you do after that? Yeah. I guess the next step, once you've had those important conversations, then what? Um, well, I mean, you're sort of seeing how the operating system all connects, right? Like this is now you're back yeah. to your skill, you're back to your skill and will conversation, right? So some of those yeah. whys, some of those whys might be your fault, right? Some of those whys might be environmental, like, oh, you didn't give them the training, you didn't give them the resources, you didn't give them, and you're like, oh, okay, let's correct that. Let's get you set up for success. Once you've eliminated all those, you're back to the only two possibilities are skill and will, like their their ability to do it and their desire. And if you've crossed off desire, now we're just in abilities. And this is the gray zone as a manager that like, this is why they pay you the big bucks or the slightly less big bucks. Um, because you have to decide, you have to say, is my continued investment in this person and the trajectory of value they're creating higher than me starting over and doing it with somebody else? Like that's really when you're in that ability and they're not quite hitting the mark, that's the judgment you have to make. And I don't, I wish I had magic for that one. Um, yeah. But hopefully yeah. the magic is getting you clarity to clear out the stuff around getting down to just that decision. Because um, a lot of times yeah. these other things make it um, harder to decipher and untangle. Yeah. So there's a little bit of replacement cost at place there and uh, at play there for sure. Uh, Dave, that's you've, you've just shared a whole bunch of, of helpful insights there. And uh, I mean, I'm already thinking about when I go back and think about the things, some of the things that you've mentioned already, just trying to figure out what are the areas I want to dig into first. So I think you've given people some really good structure there. Now, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk uh, organizationally now. And what should companies be looking for when identifying emerging leaders? The way that I would tend to think about it, Jeff, is um, I would actually not start at the leader. I would start at the company and its culture um, because I don't think all leaders are like universally interchangeable, right? So if you are, um, 
let me just make that tangible. So I was working with a company um, a couple of weeks ago. We were going through the case of Netflix um, and how they, you know, when, when, when Reed Hastings came in, he had just sold his previous startup. And he said, I, you know, a big mistake I made is that we didn't have a very intentional culture. So very early on, they got very intentional about what the culture of Netflix would be. There was a famous culture deck that was circulated broadly, I think in 2010. Iterations of that have happened. It's now on their, um, it's on their people page. Like that there's like a, it's a, it's no longer a, it's no longer a PowerPoint. It's a, it's a, you know, a Bezos endorsed uh, memo, but the same idea, right? They've written down in great detail what it is that works at Netflix and very much uh, and just as equally, if not more strongly, what doesn't work for Netflix. And so I was doing this case with a company in the telecommunication space, like um, much more older traditional company. And the reaction was stark. Like they, people in the room were like, I would never work for that company. Like that sounds terrible. Like where there's no loyalty, you know? And so you have two successful companies with two totally different cultures and values. Um, and the reason I would start there is like, if you're going to think about, well, who's going to steward this organization five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road is you need the people who are probably first and, fo fo first and foremost, most value aligned to the, what you are, right? Like the person who you might tap to go lead Netflix to 20 years from now might not be the same one that that telecommunications company would tap. In fact, I would posit they'd be very different. And so, um, I think you know if you're a if you're a startup, you're a mid-sized enterprise. Um, most of the ones I've worked with haven't they ha they they sort of have it implied, but they haven't written it down. Like they haven't they haven't codified their culture. And so, if I were going to start to think about curating the future leaders, I'd start there and say like, what are the what are the cultural tenets that we stand for? And you can do it pretty. You can sort of look at your organization and say like, well, what is what what is true? Like, what are the types of things we won't compromise on? And then the the test for me is always two or three questions. I'll say, would you turn down, if you had a, a burning vacant role, um, you know, via a top producing role or your, your, you know, your, your CIO, and you came across a great, a, like a great fit, except they weren't values aligned, would you pass them over for that, for that role? If you had a person on your team who was your top producer um, and they ran afoul of one of these values, would you fire them? Um, we work with a CEO. He's been running the company for 40 years. He said he's fired his top producer four times in 40 years. Once a decade, he has to take the number one producer at a company generating millions of dollars. Um, and he's had to fire them because that's how strongly he feels about the values. And I think it's probably why his company is still there 40 years later. Um, so anyways, I think I sort of go through, like, if you can answer those two questions, if you say like, we have a value of integrity and I will, if I can prove a candidate lacks it or someone displays it, I will fire them. Then like, then you can write that down. And if you find yourself rationalizing it, you're like, well, you know, integrity has got some gray areas, then that's not your value. It's a slogan, yeah. but it's not your value. Yeah, for sure. Well, and we, when we're helping companies formulate their values, that's what we often say is, I mean, beware of aspirational ones. Table stakes are not great either, but beware of the aspirational yeah. ones. And one of the best ways to figure out your values is try to observe how your top performing best people are already behaving. Like what are the core behaviors of the organization already? Because uh, not only does that tend to give you a better signal of what your true core values are, it's awful hard work having to try to change to meet your values as opposed to just create values that you're already living, uh, you know, provided that they're, uh, you know, that you're not breaking any laws or any rules, that kind of thing. For sure. It's, it's smart, right? What you do is who you are. Yeah.
Dave, uh, to kind of flip that upside down now, I, I wonder what kind of advice you have for an eager go-getter inside of an organization uh, that wants to become a leader in an organization and wants that accelerated growth path. How do you get your own work recognized without coming across as being you know, supremely selfish? I think the easiest is um, run the expectations play in reverse. And so what I mean by that is there's this great marketing trope. I think it's by Zig Ziglar, right? Like tell them what you're going to do. Tell them while you're doing it. Tell them that you did it. Um, and effectively, when you're trying to get a promotion, whether it's into leadership or something else, like you're you need to market yourself. Um, and so I think if you're saying like, well, I'm going to run this in reverse, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go, if I'm not getting expectations set clearly with me, then I'm going to do it. And I'm going to go to my boss and say like, Hey, I want, I want to be on the same page. I'm aspiring to be a future leader in this organization over some reasonable horizon. Um, what are, what are the, when you look at me and you, you know, assuming the opportunity opens up, like what are the gaps I need to close? And what work can we start to sequence into my development that will close those gaps and create a track record that makes it easy for you to pitch me the next time it presents itself? And two, I have two, two, you're going to get one of two reactions. Reaction one is going to be like, where do we start? Like, that is exactly who I want on my team, right? Like someone who is ambitiously cultivating their own career and wants to go have more impact. Um, and that I would say that's probably going to be 80% of the managers you work for. Another manager is going to be like, get out of here. I don't want, you know, like, and I would just say like, run. Like if your manager is not willing to invest in that development and have a conversation when you're coming in that proactively, that value oriented for the firm, um, it is time for a new firm or it is time for a new manager. Yeah. Yeah. That would certainly be a good indicator for sure. And all those are, uh, those are, uh, those are helpful tips uh, for sure. Now I, I want to ask you about which I, which I think is a really valid uh, um, valid reason right now for managers struggling is time constraints. And I think like, time constraints have always been a challenge for managers trying to, especially if you're trying to get out of the weeds and the day to day and actually evolve into that highly effective manager that, that, um, that you mentioned earlier. But right now, I think a lot of industries, a lot of organizations, and certainly the ones that we're closely tied to, they're trying to do more with less. Like they don't have enough capacity. They don't have enough people for all the vacant roles. How does a person find time to apply some of these incredible um, uh, tools that you've shared with us today, Dave? Um, I say the following thing from a place of like real empathy. Like I can... I can close my eyes and I'm back sitting on a desk um, at Bridgewater and a manager stares at me and we're still good friends. And he says, um, it's not that you don't have time. It's that you don't have priorities. And I was so pissed. I was like so mad. And I was like, I have been killing myself. I've been working endless hours. And so for you to be like, you just don't know how to prioritize was not remotely the, the message I needed to hear at that moment in time. Um, in hindsight, it was exactly the message I needed to hear at that moment in time. Uh, you know, with a little bit of space, I think most of the re reasons we don't have time is because we haven't learned how to say no, or we haven't learned how to separate important from unimportant. And, and so that's the, you know, part of being a manager and doing it well and being that leader is, is having courage, is having a point of view, is being willing to say like, no, like this is what my team is capable of. This is the most important things for them to be doing. And if you're going to ask me to do this thing that I think is less important, 
A, show me why it's more important. Um, and, and then B, we'll talk about what's going to come off of our current list to do it. Like you can't, you can't assume the role of alchemist, you know, like you can't invent capacity out of nothing in an organization that's shrinking. You, you need to partner with your manager or wherever that directive is coming from um, to really focus on what's most vital and what's most critical. And even in the, I think in a lot of tight, lean, well-run organizations, there's always, there's always more nonsense than, um, than we want to admit. And so that's the, that's the move. Like you, I don't going in and saying you don't have time never works out well, like go in with a, we're going to stop doing this. We're going to cut this. We're going to shrink this. I want to get focused on one number. Um, this is the, you know, this is what we're going to go after. Everything else is going to have to pause stupid meeting. It was a, was it Spotify or sorry, Shopify who just like cut 70,000 hours of meetings? Do you know what I mean? Like if they can, if they can do it, maybe you can do your check-ins every other week, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's good. I, I mean, that's, it's pretty, it's pretty a direct way to answer that, uh, that question, Dave, but I, I think it's, I think it needs to be said. I, Tim Ferriss has one of my favorite quotes and it's a little like, it's an uncomfortable quote, but it was that uh, uh, busyness is a form of laziness. And when you sort yeah. of you sit back and think about it, it's it's one of those inconvenient truths that I think uh, yeah. when we're when we're feeling overwhelmed and we don't have time for something that we feel should be a priority, what are the real reasons that are getting in the way of it versus like the convenient reasons that oftentimes, unfortunately, can be excuses. Yeah, because I think sometimes when you when you when you take a stand when you make a call, when you say that we should do A instead of B, like that's. It's, it's both courageous, but it can induce fear because you now put yourself out there for being wrong, right? You yeah. put your, you could have picked the wrong path. You could have made the wrong priority. And it's actually a little safer to go back and be like, I'm too busy to make a call. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dave, I want to, I want to sort of turn the tables now. And uh, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, just a little bit about you uh, more personally. Now you worked, uh -oh. um, you worked with Ray Dalio at Bridgewater and I mean, Ray, uh, Ray is a pretty famous guy, very well known. And, and one of the things that he has become well known for now that his, now that his you know, the financial uh, outcomes and, and accomplishments of, uh, of his organization have just been so overwhelmingly successful for so many years now that he's now become kind of a, a guru for creating a great culture and, a, and how to create a great company, not just about the products and services that they sort of provide. I wonder if you could give us a glimpse into what it was like working at Bridgewater, knowing that like that he's been so vocal and so public for this radical transparency concept that nobody was safe. Like even I've even heard that they that people had like uh, player cards where you'd have evaluations on the card. Like what was it like working inside of that organization? Um, uh, it's not it's not necessarily for your international crowd, but. Um... They, they were called baseball cards and they were just like the back of a, of a, of a baseball card with like stats, except my stats weren't RBIs and home runs. It was, you know, observations of how creative people thought I was or how organized or how disciplined. And there were 60 attributes and that was fed by, um, we had a tool. It was called the doc collector. You can find it on YouTube. I think it's available um, if people want it in their organization, but you, in every interaction, um, we could give each other feedback. In, in a Twitter-like feed. So you could go into my um, my dot collector Twitter feed and you would see, uh, I think by the time I left, I had 11,000 observations of feedback from people all over the organization. 
good and bad. Like, oh, you you know what, Dave, you led this meeting with like super clear, fast, efficient, wow, greens across the board. And then other times, like this was an abject waste of time, da, 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 you know, bright red. And, you know, we, we had a saying, which was like, uh, you know, it's the, it's the pattern or the synthesis that matters, not the dot. So you wouldn't, you know, like, okay, I, I, I'm not always going to be creative. I'm not always going to be organized. But what's interesting is when you drop 11,000 observations into a tool, the patterns start to pop out. You know what I mean? Like the, the people who are more organized tend to fall back on that strength. The people who are more creative tend to fall back on that strength. And you start to get, see these really unique signatures. Um, and I think if you go to that athletic analogy, right, it's a, I, I, I did a piece on Saban and it sounds like they do almost exactly the same thing when they're recruiting. They have 61 attributes or something for every player that they're recruiting at every position. And the exact ideal target they want is different. You know, they want their their defensive backs to be a little bit taller, with a little bit longer arms and a, and a bigger, you know, more explosive start. And they want their linemen to be of a certain size. And it, and it's the same idea. It's like, oh, we could we could get to a higher fidelity view of our people to be able to deploy them on the field in a better way. So I think it's that's that's what is. And then there's the question of like, well, who is that for? And the answer is not everybody. In fact, not most people. Um, most people don't want, I mean, if I was there 10 years. So you're talking about well over a thousand observations in a year. So 200 working days, I, at least five times a day, I was getting feedback. Um, and that was the ones that made it in the tool. Right. And so you'd say like, that's not everybody, you know, and there's a reason. So like more, more people who had sports backgrounds, military backgrounds, um, scientists, engineer, like people who really value data iteration, continual improvement, or who had been very accustomed to being coached. Um, it tended to work really well for those folks. Uh, and for a lot of other people, it didn't. And we tried to, um, you know, we were talking earlier about like identifying leaders, like we, even with our recruiting, we tried to make it very clear what we stood for and what we didn't, because we wanted to repel the people before they got in the door, before they started down the funnel and wasted everyone's time. You know, like if you couldn't, um, if you couldn't take feedback, like you couldn't, you, you weren't going to, you weren't going to last a month. Is it too much? Like is it necessary? Like the kind of radical transparency that they created there, did they need to go to that level to achieve the kind of success that they did? I mean, it's hard for me to speculate as like, I'm not a, I'm not on the Forbes list, um, you know, to say like, well, what is necessary and what's not? And obviously the success speaks for itself. When I, when I sort of take what I learned there, what I learned at Moody's, which look also a fortune 500 company, like I've had the good fortune of seeing two very different cultures produce um, near identical results, right? Like the, you're talking about a hundred year firm, you know, that's in the fortune 500 and the world's largest hedge fund. Like, wow, what a cool perch to see that success can be gotten in two very different ways. Um, when we teach the course, I'm obviously heavily influenced by both of those. And so I, what I would say to most people is like, no, for most organizations, I, I don't think that that level of radical truth um, would align to the culture, right? Like there's very few people who, because we knew walking in, like it was, it was sort of, um, it was not a surprise, you know, like I, I remember sitting in my interview and they said, you're an experienced manager. Just so you know, our, our attrition rate on experienced managers is 51% in the first 18 months. And I was like, whoa, okay. I'm like, so I'm a coin flip. And they're like, yep. And I think a lot of people, right, people who wouldn't want to go to Bridgewater would, this is like sort of a paradox, they would say like, oh, well, I'll be in the good 50%. And I could look at that and say like, no, 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 that's a coin flip because we all think we're in the good 50%. So it's actually yes. a coin flip. And, yeah, um, yeah. but that kind of excited me, like to be around that level of, 
that caliber, you know, like, again, I grew up in a small town, you know, and then I got a big surprise when I went to school and everyone in engineering was smarter than I was. And then I got another big surprise when I moved to New York City. And this was just a next in that adventure. And so, um, yeah, I mean, to your point, I don't know. I don't think all of the pieces would snap into someone else's culture in a good way. Um, but I think yeah, it worked for yeah. them. And there's elements that we can probably all take uh, uh, from that uh, for our, and apply it in a way that, that works for our businesses. But I think of all of that, one of, I think it's something that's that's really becoming clear that Bridgewater did really well. And then and it sounds like Moody's did a good job of it of it too, Dave, was that they were they had clarity and and then they had congruency and authenticity. So this is what it's all about. This is who we are, this is what we expect. And then the environment kind of matched up with the expectations they created. Would that be fair? That's totally fair. Um I hadn't thought about the word congruent. I, I usually would say alignment, but like I almost like congruency, that that match of congruency and authenticity even more. So that's yes, yeah. And it's uh, and I think it's a big challenge with leadership today. Is I think just about everybody that gets out of bed every morning wants to do a great job. They care about their people. They care about their contributions. They care about how they show up. And there's a whole bunch of things that get in the way of that. And so I got a lot of empathy for for uh, for everybody that's just at least trying their best. But that leadership incongruency, you know, we're, we're, we're judged on, on, on our actions. We judge ourselves based on our thoughts. I love that kind of concept. And I think that that gets in the way yeah. a lot of times in our uh, self-awareness and, and how we're perceived by others. And, and uh, I think that's important to, to talk about. Dave, and I want to end with impact. I mean, I, I, the numbers are staggering. I mean, you've, your experience at such a young age, and, and, but the thousands of people that, that you have coached and mentored, the teams that you have led, I just can't think about help but think about the impact. And, and I wonder if there's a particular story for you where you made a difference in somebody else's life that just is a really meaningful story for you. And if you wouldn't, you know, if you indulge us by maybe sharing what it is. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna like sidestep it slightly. Um, and I'm gonna tell you a story about my dad instead, if that's okay. So, um, it, it, but it ties to our last conversation. So we, you know, I started writing on, started writing on here and, um, you know, it's all, it's, it's mostly if you, the last year it's been management, it's been leadership tactics, recruiting, et cetera. And, um, one of the guys I got to know this guy, Blake Birch on father's day wrote this really nice thing about his dad. And I was like, oh man, you know, and I lost my dad five years ago. And, um, and it was funny. It was like this memory just like popped back and I was, um, you know, like he, my dad's family had had trouble like with alcohol addiction, right? And he was, he was in AA. And um, I remember being like 11 years old and he like takes me to this elementary school, like unannounced, like, come on. And I was like, where are we going? And, um, you know, I was 11 and I think he had done a really good job to try to shelter me from that world, you know? And I just, I didn't know my dad, I thought my dad, you know, he's going to work. And so he's bringing me to work. And so we go to this elementary school and there's like 20 or so people in there. And he's like, sit here. And I'm like, man, there's all these all these adults and they're chain smoking and it smells like coffee. And like, what the heck, what are we doing? And he goes to the front, he starts to tell the story about like, you know, how he got sober and he had gotten sober before I was born. Um, and, you know, he, he had helped so many people that, you know, when he did pass five years ago, um, you know, we had had this, we were going to have this small dinner for like 20 or so people. And they had to shut the restaurant down because it was like hundreds came. Um, and one after another, told the story of how like he helped them break the chain, how he helped them like overcome their addiction and, and things of that nature. And, and, you know, one of the times we talked about it, he said, you know, 
all our job really is, is to like, is to break that chain is to like, make it one notch better for your kids or for the next generation. And so like, I don't, I I'm blessed that he sort of like passed that broken part of the chain on for me. And, and so I, you know, I sort of draw upon that to help these leaders and help these managers. Like we've all had people who have like bullied us or like made us feel less or like undermined our ability to have impact. And like you said, almost everybody comes to work wanting to just do good work. They want to, they want to have an impact. They want to provide for their families. And like, if I can help, you know, a hundred or a thousand, or really like our, our new aspiration is like a million. Like I want to help a million leaders just be a little more intentional, be a little more human, be a little more impactful. Um, then I feel like I'd be like honoring his legacy in a really good way. That's a beautiful story. Thank you, Dave, for sharing that. Um, of all of the things that you have said today, uh, that is the that is the phrase uh, that I'm going to hang on to the most is one notch better. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Dave, uh, you're well on your way to that million. And uh, I, I think that might be setting the bar. Talk about, talk about clear expectations. You might be setting the bar too low for yourself based on your trajectory. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And uh, you can just the, tell like the depth of knowledge that you have. Uh, I've learned so much. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this a number of times to catch all the points that you've dropped here today. And I know that everyone that listens to it is going to feel the same way. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, the easy, I guess, two easy places to find me. So, um, you know, our our company course page, uh, which, which we talk about, you know, the usual way we interact with leaders is uh, it's management accelerator. So mgmtaccelerator.com. And then um, you can find me on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, it's a decline II. Uh, and on LinkedIn, it's just Dave Klein. That's awesome. And his content will not disappoint. Dave, thank you again for being here today. And to everybody uh, uh, tuning in, I am so excited to see what you will take from this conversation to apply to your own management behavior so that you can make things one notch better for the teams and the people in your life. Dave, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.